Be seated. <clears throat> I invite you this morning to turn as you're seated to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> We're almost done with our series here. Uh, as I studied and prayed about our passage, I've come to see that I've spent a lot of my time avoiding the main thing that God says in it. And my guess is that a lot of you are going to find yourself in the same boat because we're all related to Adam and Eve. And since not everyone is familiar with the Adam and Eve story in Genesis, since I want my comment there to make sense, uh, let me just give a quick retelling. So God creates the world out of nothing, and God loves the world and the creatures in the world. And he makes everything that he created so good, and he delights in us all so much that when he's finished, God sits back and basks in the wonderful community that he's created. That's what it means that God rested on the seventh day. Now, one of the things that you can see in the creation story is that everything relies on God for its continued existence. It's not just that God made us and let us go. It's that he made us and sustains us, and that that reliance, that daily continual reliance, is part of what gives God joy in his creation. Jesus really likes pouring life out every day to everything. So you can see the plants require the rain which God sends. The animals require the plants which God grows. We require all of it. And then in creation, God builds the Garden of Eden, and he places Adam and Eve, his image bearers, in that garden. But then Satan comes along very famously disguised as a snake because he wants to wreck that joyful community. Now, the main temptation Satan used to break this community was to know what God knows. But buried in that temptation was an even more foundational one, the temptation to not need God anymore. Because the temptation wasn't simply, they will know what God knows, but you will be like him. The desire to be like God is the desire to be self-reliant rather than God-reliant. To not need God or the community of creation that God made and sustains daily is one of the things that drew Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. What does that have to do with 2 Corinthians 12? Well, after they ate the fruit, what did Adam and Eve discover about themselves? that they were naked. Nakedness means vulnerability. It means weakness. And not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, and I think even communally and socially, their joyful life of dependent, perfect reliance on God was broken when they tried to forge a life apart from God's daily sustaining grace. Now, when they discovered they were naked and weak, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid from God. Rather than trying to return to God and rely on something in God to clothe them, they tried to solve the problem they created by hiding their weakness and hiding their need from God to restore them and to continue helping them. And that is just so like us, isn't it? When we find ourselves to be weak and vulnerable, we try to cover it in some way rather than taking that weakness to Jesus and relying on something in him 
to cover it. And uh, I'm betting you can already start seeing yourself in the creation story. And if you can see yourself in the creation story, then you can see yourself in our passage this morning. Because in our passage, Paul talks about his own struggles with weakness and how he learned when he takes his weaknesses to Jesus, Jesus uses those weaknesses to perfect his power in Paul's life. Paul learned that wholeness comes from embracing his daily need to rely on Jesus. And that's the lesson that God wants all of us to learn this morning. Wholeness only comes from daily reliance on Jesus. So let's read 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. We'll pray. And then we're going to think about one thing from our passage. The points are on the board. But the one thing that those points are all about is how do we learn to take our weaknesses to Jesus and so find wholeness? How do we learn to take our weaknesses to Jesus and so find wholeness? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word which we have just heard, and we confess that there is a truth in it that is hard for us to accept. But Lord, uh, we know that our fears and anxieties are not beyond the power of your Spirit to overcome. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would bless the, not only the reading of the Word, but the preaching of the Word through your Spirit, that you would overcome those things, that we would entrust ourselves and our weaknesses to you more and more. Father, please give us minds to understand, hearts to believe, and ears to hear your Word. May the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word. Please may it all now be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I know what you're thinking after reading that, after I read this passage, and which is, 
Matt, you said this was going to be a short sermon, and it's going to be. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. Uh, you can clearly see that Paul is trying to pass on a lesson he's learned from Jesus, which is that our weaknesses are something that's worth boasting about. Now, boasting means to tell other people something so that they will be impressed by it and ultimately by you. Paul says, what I've learned is that I, I don't really want to impress people with things like my visions and my ministry successes. I can talk about those things, Paul says. It's not sinful. That's verse 5. Though if I should wish to boast about you know, these visions and other grand things, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Paul could do that. But surprisingly, Paul says that while he could talk about all of those things, he prefers to talk to others about his weaknesses. And he gives two reasons for that. The first is found at the end of verse 6. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 6 so it's easier to follow along. Verse 6, Paul says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Uh, I enjoy reading political biographies. I recently read one by Madeleine Albright, who is a former Secretary of State, so an internationally important figure. She tells a story about her life after she left office. She was traveling to England, she was going through customs, and she was stopped, questioned, had her bag searched for a long time, and it bothered her. So she said to the officer, do you know who I am? And the officer's response was, no, but we have people here who can help you figure that out. <laughs> Here's why I tell that story. Many of us want to be bigger and more important than we appear. Isn't that one of the reasons we love superheroes with secret identities? Because they look normal, they look like you and me, but behind that mask of normalcy is great power. Paul, who has something like hidden power, who, as he says later in chapter 12, can do the signs of the apostles, heal the sick, raise the dead. He doesn't really want people to see him with that power that often. In Madeleine Aubrey terms, he doesn't want people to know who he really is. Paul wants to be the person he appears to be. If I can put it this way, Paul wants to be normal. I don't want anyone to think more of me than they see in me or hear in me. And the reality is being normal means being weak and vulnerable and needy. Like we talked about for the last couple of Sundays, Paul is calling us all to the normal Christian life of forgiveness and reconciliation, of endurance with sin and patience with the rate of growth in other people's lives and in our own life. He's calling us to a life of service and sacrifice. He's calling us to walk into scary situations, uncertain relationships, and undefined timelines in faith. Not in our own skills and powers and hidden identities, but faith in Jesus' power, in Jesus' skill, and in his revealed identity as the great shepherd of the sheep, the king of kings, the conqueror of, the de of death, the comforter, the healer, and our best friend. 
He's calling us to a life that requires reliance and moment-by-moment help from God because apart from his help, we cannot do any of those things. We are not superheroes. We're normal people. Which brings us to the second reason Paul says he boasts in his weaknesses. He not only boasts because normal life requires reliance on God, which is something we've talked about quite a bit, I think, in the last sermons. But he also boasts because he learned, as he says in verses 9 through 10, I'm going to read that again, starting in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What did Jesus mean when he told Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness? That word for power throughout the New Testament describes the saving work of Jesus. It describes Jesus' miracles of healing his forgiveness of sins, and his raising the dead. God also uses this word for power to describe the gospel power that saves all of us. So in Romans, one of my favorite verses, God says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then earlier on in his letter, Paul Uh, use this word to talk about how we carry the power of Jesus' gospel presence around in our jar of clay lives. And to remind you, when we talked about that metaphor, we talked about how jars of clay are both common and fragile, like us. So all that to say, God's power in the New Testament is the things Jesus does for us in his life and ministry, to us through his gospel, and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. The things Jesus does for us, to us, and through us. So when Jesus told Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness, he means that his power is completed, or I think an even better way of translating that is made whole or filled to the brim when we are weak. Because, my friends, when we are weak, what do we need? We need Jesus to do what we can't, to rescue the ones we can't rescue, to heal and restore and empower what we could never save or strengthen. When we are weak, you see, we cannot be self-reliant. We must be God-reliant. You see, our weakness becomes the platform for God's loving grace to stand out in our lives. It becomes the place where we get to really experience the power of God's holy love. And that's why we're strong when we bring our weaknesses to Jesus. Because we've given up trying to cover our nakedness trying to hide our vulnerability and strengthen our frailty, but instead we get to have Jesus cover them all with the power of his mercy and with his grace and with his wisdom 
and with his goodness and love and hold us together by his Holy Spirit. And then, then we get to boast about it. We get to say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me and how much that shows his love for me and his love for you. And that's why Paul boasts in his weaknesses, because in his weakness, the power of God shines into his life and out of his life, into the lives of others. And I feel like I could just stop there. But you're all wondering about these visions and that thorn in the flesh, so let's talk about them. I'm going to do my best to connect them. Everything we just said, we have to learn. Paul had to learn. And Jesus had to teach it to him. This is something that I keep coming back to. We have a vision of the apostles that they were just mature Christians like that. They had no growth. They were perfect. You'd think that they were Jesus, which they would tell you, we are not Jesus. They are human beings like you and me who needed to grow and mature like we do. Were they more mature than us in the faith? Probably. Were they perfect? No. Paul had to learn this and Jesus had to teach him. Now, the way Paul learned this lesson was by hearing this vision from a man who was caught up into the third heaven. And third heaven is just the, the way the Bible talks about being really close to God's presence in heaven. Uh, being where the cherubim and the seraphim are flying around God's throne calling holy, holy, holy. It's where Isaiah was brought in his vision in Isaiah 6. It's where Ezekiel was brought frequently in his visions. And so the question is, if you're reading this carefully, is this man who had these visions Paul or someone else? Because the way Paul writes, it's actually not totally clear. He says that he would boast on behalf of this man in verse 5, implying, it's not me. But then as many, many scholars have pointed out, when he goes on in verse 7 and says that God had to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that kind of implies it was him. Here's what I say. The ambiguity is intentional because we can all feel strong when we are the person who something great has happened to or when we know the person something great has happened to. Right? There are famous people and there are people who know famous people. And then there's us. <laughs> I think God writes here very intentionally to include the famous people and those who know famous people, both groups. So I'm not going to tell you which one I think it is because I don't know. And I think that actually misses the point. Whether you are that guy or you know that guy, the point is you still need daily help from Jesus. And what Paul says is, that this vision that he knows about, either directly or indirectly, was such a great gift that it put him in danger of becoming conceited, right? That's verse 7. And he says this twice, to keep me from becoming conceited. It's that word conceited that caused me to first connect this passage to the Garden of Eden. It only appears one other time in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, where the man of sin, who is the sort of this great adversary of God's gospel and church, where the man of sin conceits himself or exalts himself 
by declaring himself to be God, which is what Adam and Eve wanted to do. They wanted to be free of Jesus and free from reliance on him. That's what conceit means, to try and live apart from God, to be self-reliant rather than God-reliant. Now, here's the striking implication from what Paul says, and it's crazy, but it's completely true. Uh, We can take the great gifts that God gives to us and then turn them into the very reasons why we don't need God anymore. Adam and Eve had the Garden of Eden and the tree. And what did they say with the serpent's help? All these good gifts clearly mean I don't need Jesus. With these things, I can be whole and complete without him. Paul has this vision or knowledge of this vision and that great gift of seeing God because of the sin in his heart could become something Paul would use to replace God. I don't need Jesus. I'm sufficient without him. And we do this. We do this with money. We do this with fame. We do this with success at work, with family, with culture, with political power, social power, athletic success. Now notice not one thing I mentioned there is sinful. Not one. Uh, Not one thing is necessarily bad. As a matter of fact, all of those things are called explicitly good gifts in the Bible in one place or another. And yet those things can cause conceit in us as we put it in the place of God and say, I guess I don't need you, Jesus. With this, I'm not weak. I'm not needy. I'm not vulnerable. I'm strong. So what did God do to protect Paul? He put a thorn in Paul's side. Metaphorically, kids, he didn't actually stick him with a thorn. Uh, That's verse 7. I'm going to read that again. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here's the question. What is the thorn in the flesh? Well, again, we don't know. Here are some guesses. Uh, We know from Galatians that Paul suffered at least once from temporary blindness. Because of his frequent talk about anxiety and sadness, some think that Paul might have suffered from what we now call depression. It could have been joint pain. He had a rough life. Being stoned is not good on your knees, I've heard. Uh, It could be loneliness. Paul clearly did not have a lot of friends with all of his moving and all the ministry work and the constant explosions in church families that he was dealing with. It could be a sense of homelessness because he was often welcomed by the Gentiles while being rejected by his Jewish family. It could be a number of things. And just to tell you, the fact that Paul calls it a messenger of Satan doesn't actually clarify it at all. Because in Saul's life in the Old Testament and in Job's life and in Israel's life, Satan does not possess people. So as Halloween comes up, you can cast that one aside. That's not what Satan does. Satan harasses people with physical suffering, social suffering, mental suffering in order to try and cause spiritual suffering. 
the idea that God doesn't love me and has abandoned me, so I may as well curse him and die, to quote Job's wife. So what then was this thorn? I don't know. And again, I think that's the point. Jesus doesn't want it to be specific because all of us at some time or another have a thorn. And what Jesus is doing here is inviting us to find ourselves in a situation that's similar to Paul's so that we can learn the same lesson, which is to see that the thorn is a reminder that we are just never going to be sufficient in ourselves for this life and that we need Jesus and that we need to run to him and rely on him. And so this thorn gives us something to remind us daily, Jesus, help me. I need you. And then from there, to bring everything else to him as well. And so I want to close this morning with a short, short story and then an encouragement about all of this. Here's, here's the story about a thorn in the flesh. Uh, I was recently talking to a brother in Christ who lost most of his hearing when he got older. And he told me, and when he told me that, I said, well, that's got to be very hard. And he says, it was. It still is sometimes. But what I've learned is that God took away my hearing so that I would learn to treasure his word and give myself to hearing the scripture whenever I can. And then he said that learning that lesson was really helpful when he eventually lost his eyesight. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when God took away my sight, I knew it must be so that I could learn to walk by faith, to learn what it really means to trust in a God you cannot see, but who you need if you're going to do anything. I close with this story because it's powerful, it's real, and because it shows us how these kinds of thorns are meant to work in our lives. Jesus, I'm so weak. Please help me. And he does. And it becomes a place where Jesus' power is filled to the full in our lives. And as in the case of Paul and this man, uh, this man that I was talking to, it spills over from our lives and blesses others because the power of Christ is evident. Now I want to end on this encouragement. Because I bet when you heard that story and you were hearing about Paul's response to the thorn, your response was probably a little like mine after you thought, wow, that's amazing. Your next thought was probably, I am not that godly or mature. <laughs> right. Maturity takes time. So let me add this. Notice the lesson Paul says he learned here in 2 Corinthians is what he should boast about. But also notice he doesn't say he's content. And yes, I know in verse 10 of our translations, they have Paul saying, I am content. But the word translated as content doesn't mean content. It means to publicly rejoice. He says, therefore, for Christ's sake, I will publicly rejoice in my hardships. Here's why that's important and why I find encouragement in this distinction. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians around 57, 56, 57 AD. He wrote the book of Philippians around 60 AD. So three, four, maybe five years later. At the end of Philippians, Paul says he's learned not just to boast in his weakness, but to be content in them because Jesus is with him in weakness. That's where Paul says, 
Unlike here, which I think the translator sort of voiced that on this passage, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I am content in all things. And if I can read between the lines a little bit, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is clearly still wrestling with his thorn in the flesh. He's matured. He's learned about how God's power comes in weakness, but it clearly still bothers him. But in Philippians, if you just go home and read the end of chapter 4, he's not bothered. He's content now. And if these letters are any guide, it took Paul about three to four years to not only see his weakness as the place where God's power is, but to find contentment in where God decided to show his power in his life every day. To find that weakness is a blessing, not simply intellectually, but experientially, because he actually values the way he experiences God's grace in it. How did Paul get there? Prayer. Worship. Taking his weakness to Jesus in prayer and living weekly every Sunday in weakness with weak sinners. My hope for us this morning is that we would no longer fear our weaknesses or that this would help us move a little bit further away from being afraid of them, but instead see that our weaknesses, our inabilities, our vulnerabilities are actually the place in our lives where we can actively repent for Adam and Eve's sin and say, Jesus, I need you. Please help. So that we can experience the amazing power and goodness of our Savior as it fills our lives to the brim and then overflows into the lives of everyone else around us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that uh, we can take our weaknesses and frailty to you and that you cover them with the power of Christ. Help us to see and experience the ways in which you are strong in our weaknesses so that we can learn to boast about them because of the way that you are present in them. And uh, please help us also to respond to each other's weaknesses by looking for your presence in them. And so help each other see the places where your power is overflowing most profoundly in our lives. And we ask this through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.